Good morning, Minecrafters, and welcome to episode 16, Highway to Hell, part 2. Well, last week we got such a good jump on our discussion on depression that I kind of decided sort of on the spot there to carry it into a, a part 2 because there's no way we're going to wrap that up you know, in just one episode. So this week, um, we're going to talk about, you know, depression as far as the different causes and also loneliness. There's an epidemic in this country of loneliness. We'll tackle that next. But first, I really want to sort of mention that there are, you know, lots of causes, lots of factors. We don't like the word cause in psychology too much, but factors involved as, and, you know, not, a, not everyone is, you know, gets depressed in the same ways or for the same reasons. So we will start there. So Ryan Hatch talks about, um, in his article, Depression's Many Causes, that he's saw, just some statistics. I think it's just validating, right? He says about one in six American adults experienced, experienced depression. And in 2017, more than 17 million reported suffering from a major bout of it within the previous year and also uh, worldwide about 300 million people are thought to currently suffer from depression or have suffered from it um, before. So in essence, then, this means that there are 300 million different causes and 300 million different prognoses. And, and, and if we think about that, this is, makes perfect sense why, you know, depression can be so difficult to um, sort of identify and treat. So some of the factors, obviously, we've got genetics, right? We've talked about that before, um, where uh, we can't, you know, the, the poker hand we're, we're dealt genetically can predispose us to different things, which works in the positive sense too, right? You know, intelligence and athleticism and, you know, being artistic and all these other, you know, lovely, you know, qualities, despite all, or despite all the physical um, possibilities we can be predisposed to that are positive. And it's just true that when we're talking about mental health issues, such as anxiety, depression, the neurodevelopmental category of ADHD and autism, that we can be predisposed by our, by our genes. We know this for sure. Also our age, uh, gender, and also situational loss. You know, if there's any kind of, you know, somebody, let's say is not clinically depressed and then they suffer, a, you know, a series of losses in their family, deaths maybe, or God forbid, a car accident, and they lose a limb or two. Well, that makes, you know, great sense with losing, you know, one's mobility or losing people you super, that you care about, you know, a super lot to maybe become temporarily depressed. And as Ryan Hatch talks about in his article, it wouldn't be, you know, accurate to just draw this straight line from depression straight to suicide because it's way more complicated than this, right? Though at the same time, with 14,000 young adults taking their own lives in one single year is completely unacceptable. In fact, according to Healthline, for uh, people ages 15 through 34, suicide is the leading cause of death. You know, so if we stay, you know, on the age factor for just a little bit, if we start with teenagers right into young adults, because uh, I try to explain this to my my college students that it, I don't mean it in a condescending way; it's just neurologically true 
that the prefrontal cortex is not fully developed in either genetic males or genetic females until the age of 25, which means basically that they're half-baked bread. So certainly 14 isn't you know the same thing as 22 because gradually you know, we're making progress along the way with growth and development. However, this is really important to know because developmentally they're just not as capable of seeing around the corner of uh you know, decision-making or judgment, the impulse control isn't totally there. And uh, another thing is that people often, you know, well-meaning parents or whomever often, you know, sort of blame hormones and puberty and all that when, you know, teenagers, it's, it's way more important to be validating because they've got a lot of stuff going on in their worlds. You know, and just like for grown-ups, perception is our reality, Right. So their teen world that, that, you know, they kind of walk around with a globe on their head, right? And all that's going on in there is what they are interacting with, processing, and responding to. And then we've got all the fun changes going on with um, bodies, right? And maybe they're unsure, you know, uh, maybe they're, you know, having an attraction to the same, this, to the same gender or um, maybe not sure about their gender, maybe having an attraction to genetic males and genetic females and being confused about that. And it's just, it just can be a very, very tough time. You know, some of us grownups can think back to middle school. And in my opinion, not that middle school has ever been fun for sure. I mean, maybe moments of fun, sure, but it is usually a challenging time. Even on a good day, you know, middle school just, you know, has its challenges. There's just so many changes going on. And if we bring in to, you know, I'm 55, if we bring into, you know, 2020 with all the social media, as we discussed last time, also I did a separate, whole separate episode on that for those of you who may have missed it. But, you know, the middle schoolers right up through and younger, right, right, right up through are, you know, comparing themselves daily, their very real selves to this backdrop of, you know, make pretend land as far as all the many ways they don't measure up. You know, and those big questions often, you know, follow a a teenager right through high school. They may then have experiences with, you know, um, a different gender or the same gender and then be questioning, you know, and feeling guilty and all kinds of things, especially if, you know, being, you know, quote unquote, different from what their family perceives to be, um, you know, quote unquote, normal, that can cause a lot of trouble too. If, the, if that teenager isn't accepted, um, you know, is for who they are with their sexual orientation and their gender. And if they're not, you know, not loved unconditionally for, for this, that absolutely can send a teenager um, or young adult into, you know, depression, you know, and then if it's not enough to have bodies changing, possibly being unsure about one's gender or one's sexual preference or one's sexual orientation, the world, the external world, you know, all that's going on in the internal world is overwhelming enough. So let's say, a, you know, 13, 14, 15, you know, 19 year old, if that isn't enough, we've got, you know, a pandemic on the ex- in the external world. So just walking out the door of one's apartment or, or house, and you can just feel the fear-based energy around. I mean, thankfully it's getting better, though it's still, it's still present. Then, okay, we've got all the typical stuff going on with 
with teens in middle school and high school. And then there's the bullying thing. And now cyberbullying, again, changes or, you know, uncertainty about gender and sexual preference, sexual orientation, pandemic, we're adding on here. And we've got, you know, just very blatant racism plastered all over the media daily due to the horrible, you know, recent murders of George, Brianna, and Ahmed, you know, just bang. And obviously this has been going, disclaimer, right? We all know this has been going on for, well, actually 14 generations, right? So of this um, generational trauma for uh, people of color. And if it's not enough to have, you know, all these other, you know, middle school, high school things and stuff with, you know, changes and, and, you know, social friendships and potential dating friendships and all this uncertainty, like we're talking about, add in the pandemic, add in the fear of the parent or parents in the house when you get home and just lost their job or might lose their job or, or, you know, whatever. Add in, you know, the, the racism piece, which it, you know, affects all of us, though, especially for teens and young adults of color, th- this is just way, way, way too much to contend with. And if we, you know, bring in the generational piece of, um, you know, that, that, um, that people of color have been, you know, uh, caring for so long, it's just absolutely overwhelming. You know, and it really is important for all of us, emphasis on all of us, to understand how epigenetics works, right? Which is the blend, you know, the environment and genes and everything like that. And what what it means to experience generational trauma, because it's actually stays generationally. Trauma just keeps and carries over this feeling. And Resma Menikam, he's a he's an amazing trauma specialist. And I listened to his podcast uh, a few weeks ago before I did a thing on race and gender. Um the AAUW, and I'll tell you, he's amazing. And he refers to people of color uh, as bodies of culture because he he believes that this 14 generations of trauma and, uh, you know, has, has actually has manifested in the body and that, that people of color, people of color have been carrying this with them for all these generations. And then he goes on to talk about cortisol, which we've discussed right in the various episodes in relation to um, stress. And because it is the primary, there's other stress hormones, but cortisol is probably one most people have heard of, heard of. And that this staying in the body longer than the three hours, it's, it's kind of supposed to hang around, just destroys healthy neurons and, uh, you know, wreaks havoc, you know, immune systemizes, you know, all, all kinds of ways. And Resma talks about being, and this is just so important to get. I, I just um, really glad that a, a friend and colleague of mine in marketing sent this to me because I've just used it and spread it and shared it and all kinds of things. Resma talks about just being a, a black baby born into a world where, uh, like, the white exemplar, let's say, or is like is perceived to be you know, this, you know, this superior means that for a black baby being born into this white world, just being born into this white world is trauma in and of itself. You know, and this also goes back to what we we're saying about half-baked bread, right? Just in general with the prefrontal cortex. So 
I mean, an, you know, an adult person of color, for an adult person of color, what's going on right now, what has been going on and, and all that with racism, that's just to wrap our heads around that at this at this age um, and to have an adult person of color be able to manage it is hard enough, just hard enough. It's got to be overwhelming. And then imagine, you know, the same stuff is going on. You know, for a, a child, a teenager, and a young adult of color, how in the world are they supposed to wrap their heads around that? I don't know. You know, and, and this is just so huge. And here they don't have the, you know, cognitively speaking, you know, they're 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 not developmentally, you know, their brains aren't developmentally complete yet. They're not fully grown, which just adds even more to this. Okay, so and you know now. We will bring up gender, which um, personally I have a little bit of a debate with this one. But okay, let's just say, see what Ryan Hatch has to say. He says that as far as gender, depression is not a sexually even-handed disease. After puberty, women are roughly twice as likely as men to develop the condition. This stems from a combination of factors, but some experts believe that it's mostly hormonal. Estrogen, which is of course which of course women produce in far higher concentrations than men appears to foster high degrees of rumination. That worrying and second guessing is a precursor to depression. Conversely, testosterone, the principal male hormone is shown in some studies to block estrogen that would otherwise find neurological receptors in quotes associated with deep introspection. Okay, so we have the hormonal thing, and we know um, for uh, genetic males and genetic females, even with, you know, the hormones situation kind of, you know, genetic, right, right? poker poker cards are dealt, we're all still wired differently. So estrogen levels, obviously, in one woman are not the same as they are in another woman, same for testosterone in men. And also, this is where I would kind of argue a little bit of a point here, even with the hormones, which is what it is. Um, with as far as the, the statistics out there, I would just throw a little independent and critical thinking at this, like I like to say with my college students, because what's also a truth is women are more likely to seek help than men, right? So the only way statistics get into a database is if, you know, somebody says something, right? You walk into a counseling center or you land in the ER, or there's a police report, something. There has to be data has to get there in order to come up with, you know, women are twice as likely to develop develop depression. So since women are more likely to reach out for help, to me, that skews that a little bit. And men, the symptoms look different. They're not the same as women. And um, they may not, again, they don't reach out for help as much, and the symptoms just don't look the same. So I just want to throw that out there. And even so, the hormone thing is real, right? So uh, Ryan goes back. He says, uh, tellingly, after menopause, women's depression rates drop to the same level as men's. It raises questions about biological and social mechanisms, says somebody named Mendel. That is, hormonal chemistry may well be a force, but so may be the pressures that come from bearing and rearing children. Then Ryan Hatch goes on to say that the nature versus nurture debate isn't likely to disappear anytime soon. Truth right there for sure. But what most can agree on is that 
treatment for depression is more or less the same for both men and women. Both genders react comparably to various drugs and doses. We're not talking about pregnant women here, though. Cognitive behavioral therapy is gender blind as well. The tools patients learn during treatment, you know, the reframing of life challenges so that not every setback is treated as a catastrophe, pushing back against assumptions of hopelessness or worthlessness, adopting proactive habits like exercising, connecting with friends can work equally well for both genetic males and genetic females. So we can kind of pull these apart one by one. The reframing thing is huge. And again, those of you, you who have been listening along the way know that I'm, a, I'm more of a fan of skills than talents, right? It's nice when the heavens part, you know, and drop some lovely gene in our lap. And, you know, it might be fun to be Einstein or, you know, whoever for a day or Michael Phelps, whatever for a day, right? Um, in reality, though, I, I really like skills. I like skills because we can learn them. It means what we practice, we inevitably get good at. And it, this also brings with it eight chip, chipmunk just ran the house. You got to love that on a podcast, huh? huh? Okay. So reframing. So it means with skills, we can um, learn and take agency, take ownership, take control over the situation and get better at it. This comes right back to the main theme of becoming a minecrafter, Right which means to become the boss of our brain. Thoughts come first and feelings come second. So if we're allowing dark, depressed thoughts, we are then going to feel dark and depressed. And remember, disclaimer, in no way am I saying this is easy. And in no way am I saying that some of the strategies we we discuss are meant to take the place of professional treatment. Absolutely not. And by the same token, it um, it's a simple truth that Thoughts come first and feelings come second. And we can learn to become the boss of our brain no matter what, you know, cards were dealt. And then uh, from another different previous episode, we talked about learned optimism, right? Sometimes people think when they see somebody walking around all cheerful that they also won the lottery and they got the happiness ticket or the cheerful ticket. No, not how it works. Again, predisposed, maybe. But happiness is a choice. And one can certainly learn optimism that has to do with first making the choice, the conscious choice of, I want to make this change, and then to practice like anything else or rehearse, just like, you know, for a play or, you know, practicing like your Michael Phelps for the Olympics. What we practice, we inevitably get good at. And as mentioned in that learned optimism episode, there's obviously a strong correlation between, you know, a pessimistic thought pattern and depression as well. So this is a real good shift to make up and out of that to one that's more optimistic. We have the reframe. Also in a previous episode, we talked about the importance of mindsets, right? So the growth versus a fixed mindset, the person with, or who develops, right? It's not like you've got the lottery ticket, you know, for a growth mindset. You can be more predisposed. Yes. But somebody with a fixed mindset can certainly learn with practice to develop a growth mindset. And the person with the growth mindset is going to deal with failure better, is going to manage depression better, is going to have kind of an easier road through life in general because they look at obstacles and speed bumps as learning experiences, Think, no matter how hard they are. I'm not saying it's easy. However, this person with a growth mindset is going to kind of look at something as, a, as more of a learning experience or a challenge, something that they can grow from than somebody who's more stuck in a fixed mindset. 
Um, also, another FYI for any of you educators out there, uh, within the within the classroom itself, there are things that can be done. I'm thinking of high school and college. We have tons of conversations in my classes, obviously. Um, there's And this is the Ryan Hatch article again. This is interesting. In 2000, a 2016 study, the Journal of Psychological Science, okay, it showed that high school freshmen who participated in simple reading uh, and writing exercises that drew on seniors' experiences overcoming obstacles during their own high school years reported a 40% decrease in depression versus a control group. That's a lot. That's almost half. Uh, the experiment's intent was to present freshmen with the idea that things will improve. That crises that a crisis now will be insignificant in a few years, if not a few months. One of the reasons the exercise worked, researchers hypothesized, was that it was their peers offering them the smart counsel rather than grown-ups. You know, in that type of situation, it's just awesome. I'm a big fan of both education and conversation. High school kids are certainly capable of this. And also, I mean, just understanding what depression is, how it works, and that it's a brain thing. At least with my own students, they voice this, that once they understand, you know, it's, you know, reduced serotonin levels. Now we talk about the limbic system, like, like we've done in other episodes. That right away, you know, equate it to diabetes or something else. And, you know, nobody would look at you sideways if you went to the doctor because you had diabetes to get insulin. It, it just, you know, it, with medication for it or whatever, it's just knowing, having a knowledge of how it, depression works, what it is, it's just so valuable. And then also to, you know, have a conversation. Kids can share once they share with each other, once the college students share with each other and it just, they, it, they feel less alone. And that is a big deal. And then also to educate them on the causes, you know, many of which we've spoken about already to bring up the pandemic, the pandemic, validating, okay, bring up racism, validating. And then there's with, um, oftentimes with athletes, so it doesn't have to be athletes, concussions can cause depression. They should know this. Our youngest son played football in high school and had a horrific concussion. You know, he was, you know, 155 pounds soaking wet and they put him in the center. So of course it went up, yeah, went after the guy with the ball because he was fast and bang, he was, you know, pretty soon I went to, we went to, you know, race to the ER and he was, you know, rapping in Spanish to the nurses. He was totally looping out of it. And I'm making light of it just because I think it's easier for me to talk about it, but it's anything but funny. And I've had several students with concussions and I'm thinking of one um, who came and told me, he was a first year, this kid was 18 years old. And he said, he told me that he had an accident snowboarding. I said, did you hit your head? He said, yeah, real bad. And so of course I sent him on, you know, over to the, to the health center and within a couple of days, he stayed after again. He said, you know, I don't feel right. And I said, how? You know, chatting after class. And he said, I feel, I think he said, I have the blues. I think that's how he said it. And we talked about this. And I said, let's just call him Jason. I don't remember his name. Um, Jason, you realize that, you know, not, that nothing's wrong with you. Concussions often have a very temporary um, depression feeling that kind of comes along with it. And it's, it, I watched his face lift just knowing that there wasn't something wrong with him, that this is part of, he crashed on his snowboard. I don't like how I feel right now, but wow, am I relieved to know that there hasn't been some kind of personality change in me or that it's not going to get better. There was immediate relief there. And that comes with 
education and conversation. And I can't say enough about this. And the high school students are certainly capable of this, capable of this as well. And middle school students, I would say. And again, the awareness is so important. And it's also important to be aware of the impact of loneliness and uh, what this, how this leads to depression. So Markham Heed, in his article, um, The Loneliness Epidemic, speaks about uh, loneliness as actually being a public health concern, right? So listen to this. He says, why loneliness matters. Ask the average person or even the average public health official about the common causes of illness and death, and you'll hear some predictable replies. Smoking, of course, obesity, a bad diet too, little exercise, and though all these are certainly important, okay, he talks about loneliness being just as important when it comes to mortality. In fact, loneliness is associated with a 26% jump in mortality risk. This puts loneliness at par with smoking and obesity in terms of its impact on a person's risk for death. Loneliness also drives up the odds for many other prevalent health conditions. Hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes are all more common among the lonely. Of course, there's some pretty huge irony here, you know, in the age of technology, and especially social media, which is meant to be a form of connection, yet I, many would agree that uh, I don't know if we've ever been this, this disconnected. And, I mean, just think about this. And the relationship of, um, you know, the social media thing and social comparison and isolation as it relates to depression and also the chicken and the egg thing, right? We, we know for sure that, um, you know, lots and lots of social media use can really set somebody up for depression. And then, you know, the reverse is true. Somebody can be depressed and look to social media for a connection and it can end up being like a, a vicious cycle. Because when we talked about, you know, the, the comparison thing, right, of the real against the real self against the backdrop of, you know, make pretend land and the, you know, the falseness that so- social media offers. And it's also the isolation piece, you know, become it can become easier to, quote unquote, socialize in this way um, when we actually, you know, can often further isolate, whether it's friendships or dating or whatever, it can become very, very easy to kind of hide behind the screen, which obviously leads to, um, or can lead to more loneliness. You know, as Markham Hyde explains, you know, to feel this emotion, I'm not a big fan of the word normal, but obviously it's you know, relatively common to feel this from time to time. But when somebody's feeling chronically lonely, you know, for weeks and months and years, that's when we're talking about it becoming an actual health concern. And what we're talking about with the epidemic of loneliness uh, again, also largely related to social media. And Hyde says, uh, in terms of the outward signs of loneliness, experts say the condition can manifest in many different ways. Loneliness makes people irritable, depressed, and self-centered. It also paradoxically can make a person standoffish or fearful of others. And then, uh, I'm trying to pronounce this right, Cacioppo is a person, Cacioppo, maybe it's Italian, Cacioppo, um, is a person quoted in the article. It says a person 
uh, or sorry, explains that those who feel socially cut off or alone tend to slip into defensive self-preservation modes that make them difficult to befriend or get close to. And that can exacerbate the issue. He goes on to say that the problem is poised uh, to get much worse with the growing number of adults 55 and over the number of older people with loneliness is showing rapid increases and raising alarm, alarming public health concerns. Cacioppo says she, men- she mentions that loneliness at older ages is associated with higher rates of Alzheimer's disease, cardiovascular disease, and depression. And I'll tell you, I used this article that I'm, I'm currently reading from with my Minecraft class just this last semester. It's relatively new. And yet it was written pre-pandemic. So what's interesting is when Markham Hyde, the author of this article, starts talking about, you know, sort of um, the solution or how to remedy this loneliness epidemic. It's interesting because just that short amount of time, um, it, his, his remedy would be like not as able to be to happen. So I think it's important to discuss this because it is things are so different, you know, now in uh, 2020, since, you know, earlier mid-March when the world started to close and basically the closed, you know, shut down seemingly overnight. Um, Markham Hyde here talks about combating the, the epidemic of loneliness again, pre-pandemic. And he says, there's an argument to be made that more people today are lonely because so much of modern life is designed around spending time alone. The percentages of Americans who regularly attend social clubs, uh, hobbyist groups, religious services, and other gatherings have long been on the wane. In most cases, these social pursuits have been replaced by solitary entertainments. Prioritizing get-togethers and time spent with friends or family members is a great way to reverse this trend. Joining a book club, a study group, or some kind of sports team can also help. Um, Even weak social ties, he says, a causal chat with a uh, a causal chat, yikes, a casual chat with a barista or neighbor seem to promote well-being and belonging. Concludes a study from the University of British Columbia. And personally, I'm just finding this fascinating that, again, this article is so current, and yet it's already outdated because obviously with physical distancing, you know, we're saying physical distancing, right? Because social, it's uh, words are powerful and social distancing is definitely harder for my head to wrap around because you're saying, you know, be social yet stay away from each other. You know, it reminds me of, you know, the, the old, old doctor solution and the, and the push me, pull you, you know, come here, go away kind of thing. And that's what the message is, is, you know, push me, pull you, come here, go away. And, he, he talks about um, the quality of a person's social inter- connections, not just the quantity, seems to be a significant um, bulwark against feelings of loneliness and isolation. He said, we asked people, would you call in the middle of the night? Who would you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared? It's connections like those that make a difference. You know, and that's a good point. You know, obviously just putting somebody who's lonely you know, the group of people, crowd of people isn't going to work. And we've all heard the cliche, you know, alone in a crowd sort of thing. And this also reminds me of the famous Harvard study that 
I also use in my class. It's a longitudinal study, right? Which means it's gone on for, well, at this point, <clears throat> generations. I forget how many researchers are up to now to head it up. Might be like the fourth or fifth one or even more at this point. But it's amazing because it started way back, um, I think like the you know, uh, early part of the 20th century. And um, basically measuring happiness, which is tough, it's subjective, but they did. And it's, <clears throat> this study is amazing because they, they were so involved with these men's lives and it was men, of course, it's back then. It's so involved with every single thing they did from the ground up from 18 when they entered into Harvard, all the way up through into their, until these men were in their eighties. And no matter, you know, they took, they took into consideration all possible things in their lives and what it came down to for longevity, living the longest life, and quality of well-being, the number one factor, and there were others, but the number one was close social relationships. So the relation, it doesn't count if they're, you know, toxic. That can go the other way. But close personal relationships, you know, partners and siblings and you know, children and, and friends and everything, but tight. And what it came down to was just what, what was just said in this article is that it's not about quantity. It's about quality. Who, who do you have somebody you could absolutely count on no matter what? Okay. You know, call them in the middle of the night, know that they'd be okay with it. And this is when it came down to it. This is what, what uh, was the number one key factor in one's well-being, living in optimal an optimal life and a long life. Okay, so let's just recap here. So the main thread, you know, through these episodes is is become you know becoming mind crafters, is learning how to become the boss of our brain, right? So thoughts come first and feelings come second. The basis of cognitive behavioral therapy, also, and we've also have a main thread of Marty Seligman, one of my faves, the father of positive psychology. His acronym PERMA, right? So what we're talking about. Um, with all of this and, and, and what we just finished with loneliness, it, PERMA, okay, so positive emotion, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishment. Positive emotion, right? Positive thoughts are going to lead to positive feelings. We know this to be true. No one said it's easy. It will take practice. It will take rehearsing. It will take commitment. And stick to itness, grit. It will work um, if we continue to practice it. Engagement, and this has me thinking of of Gandhi. Actually, you know, you know, uh, very very paraphrased. Gandhi was big on service, as I think you know the world knows. And he, in his own way, would say, you know, if you're starting to feel blue, down, get out and do something for someone. You know, kind of get out of yourself, do something for someone else. And not only will this benefit the other person, it will make you feel better. You know, and all this threads right through the PERMA, right? Positive emotion, engagement with people, um, relationships, right? Meaning, this is huge. Another book that uh, I use in, in the Minecraft course is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which, of course, is his, you know, the tale of how he survived the concentration camps during World War II. And, and wow, talk about the power of his mind control is amazing. And also his sense of purpose, his sense of meaning. And Gandhi, of course, had a huge sense of purpose and meaning. And it's not that we have to be on the level, you know, Victor Frankl or Gandhi. Purpose and meaning um, can be 
anything as long as it works for us and not having a sense of purpose and meaning is a straight, like straight road to depression. This is often why many uh, people when they're elderly and, you know, all of a sudden if they're put into a, um, you know, assisted living home or something like that and, and they no longer are needed, it's no big surprise that they slide into depression. And then the last one for PERMA is accomplishment. And this also works with, you know, they all, if you're seeing like the thread, they all kind of roll together because we can have a sense of meaning and purpose that then rolls into a sense of accomplishment. Even if it's doing something for a day that, that helps other people, um, this is, this, this fuels us, feeds us dopamine fix when we do something nice for someone, even something as small as, you know, um, helping somebody older carry their groceries out to the car, you know, anything works you know, right up through, you know, an authentic purpose at, uh, your, your job or career. Right. And, and if, when we're passionate about this and having a sense of purpose, there's not going to be an ounce of room for depression. Gandhi was also big on momentum besides the, you know, the servicing, like keep it going, keep it going. And it's true. Once we get in the kind of get in the zone with, our sense of purpose and being active and being motivated, it builds and builds and builds. And obviously this is, can be difficult for people who are depressed. And, and Gandhi would, you know, would say, you know, push, he struggled with depression himself. For those of you who don't know, and he's get push yourself, get started, get moving. And uh, this is very, very true. So again, the sense of service that Gandhi talks about, you know, feeds right into PERMA. And he also Again, he, he has talked about his own depression and building up this momentum. It, it came to a point where his sense of authentic purpose became stronger than anything he was afraid of and the demons he was battling emotionally. And lastly here, Gandhi was also big on gratitude and practicing gratitude. You know, it's great if it's a feeling, a little wave of, of a feeling. It's way more important when we kind of turn this whole thing into an action, you know, word, practice, practice, turning the, um, the feeling of gratitude into actually planning for this every day as a routine, which is what I do personally. And bringing Marty Seligman back into it, Marty Seligman is a big fan of the gratitude journal. And in my Minecraft course, we have a routine where we start out with a minute of mindfulness every single class, just one minute, then we roll right into a gratitude share and they have journals because the power of the word is w- very important. It's good to say I'm grateful for in my head, whatever, and that that's good. However, the neurons themselves are not going to rewire as quickly or um, as strongly without writing it down. I am grateful for. So in the first day or two, I'll correct students as they'll you know go around and say, my mom, my dog banana bread, you know, whatever, and say, I am grateful for, write down, I am grateful for three things every day. For me, it's right when I wake up and it's important to have it accessible. You know, if you have to go out of your way to find your gratitude journal, it's probably not going to happen. For me, it's right on the windowsill. So I have to walk of our bedroom. So I have to kind of walk, walk past it to get out the door. So it's very rare that um, that I don't write my three quick things. And it shouldn't be something that's super time-consuming, just, just fast. I am grateful for, number one, I'm grateful for, number two. And you get used to that. The neurons that wire to, together fire together, okay? And there will be a neurological change 
in your mind, your brain, um, if you practice that as a routine, I know for sure. And as this becomes a habit, right, you know, shifting out of the negative, you know, thinking that that is so common with depression and shifting over to um, a more half full appreciating what I already have, there will be less and less room for depressed thinking. And on that note, next week, we will roll right into the power of gratitude. This is Kimberly Quinn signing off from Northern Vermont. Have a mindful day. Mm-hmm.